Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How you day? It's your boy Ty Roxon, and today I am talking about a series of things. The importance of failing forward, the importance of evaluating masculinity in today's world, and just what it's like to have a growth mindset. I have a great guest to talk about that. His name is Todd Palmer, and he had a very generous offer at the end for uh, you all to take advantage of if you want to really get into his mind and how he knows how to manage people, cash, strategy, execution, or just being a thought leader in the space. Uh, He extended um, up to an hour of conversation for you. So I hope some of you take advantage of that because that's what this podcast is here for, to create a platform for you all to grow yourselves and develop yourselves. Also, as always, you know I'm an open book, so reach out to me on Instagram at Ty Roxon or Twitter at Ty Roxon, and I'm always happy to uh, to answer questions for you all or, um, you know, just talk to you and acknowledge you all with that being said enjoy today's episode in a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors cross-cultural expert tayo roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide each week he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world get ready Take some notes and learn how to be the best you that you can be. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is Todd Palmer. Now, Todd Palmer describes himself as a chief rule breaker, but he's an entrepreneur, he's a CEO, he's an author, he's a speaker, and he's a business coach. He's very multifaceted. Um, he's also run a six-time Inc. 5,000 company, and we're going to be talking about different ways to develop a growth mindset, how to really, really make sure you're failing forward, and the importance of really being positive about your your stories and your expert, uh, your expertise. So I'm really, really excited because within this man includes a lot of stories that I feel like would inspire you to get about and go about your day. So without further ado, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure is mine. So you are like a, an onion. There's, there are many layers. So I'm just going to peel back down to the youngest version <laughs> of Todd where you can start talking about those pivotal moments for yourself. When did you really realize that you were this chief rule breaker? Wow, that's a great question. Um, it's funny. I, I had to do – I'm part of a group called EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, and we did an exercise one time many years ago where we talked about the first business we ever started. Yeah. And it dawned on me that the very first business I ever started was I, I started a business when I was in the sixth grade, 
And I grew up in a small town. Uh, I grew up on a farm in mid-Michigan. And we had one store. And that store sold candy. And I would go in in the morning. My mom would drive me to school. And I'd go pick up candy. And I'd buy it for a nickel. And I'd sell it for a quarter to my, to my students, or to, to my, my um, fellow classmates. And really, that was my first business because I was breaking the rule. Uh, the mm-hmm. school did not appreciate me selling things on campus. And I got uh, called down to the principal's office to basically cease and desist uh, all candy sales to, to fellow students. So I, I think that's really where I figured out, like, hmm, I, the rule, I understand the purpose of rules, but sometimes I, I really don't want them to apply to me. So how do I find ways around them? Right, right. Oh, my gosh. And, and, and so with that type of mindset, obviously, it led to what you do today. I mean, you do several things. I mean, on, on a level of, of developing people, and that's the through line I see with everything. Whether you're an author, coach, CEO, you are developing people. But talk to me about when you realized uh, that your idea could become a business. That particular point from idea to execution is one that many people I find are stuck in because – they might have an idea, but they might not be sure how to execute. How did you break out of that? Well, the first thing I did was recognize that I was not a very good employee. I, I did better working for myself than working for others, which was can be a very painful, painful uh, discovery because I think, as, especially in my generation, we were taught that you know the, the key to happiness was to grow up, go to school, and get a good job. It wasn't to go to school or not go to school, to start or not start a business. And so I had to, to recognize that, you know, it kind of goes under the category of know thyself. Um, from there, I wrote a business plan. The business plan required $140,000 in startup capital. As a 26-year-old entrepreneur, single dad, recently divorced, I was not a good risk for banks. And I eventually found a friend of mine who would loan me $15,000 so I could start the company because $15,000 would basically get me through the first first 90 days and we would go from there. So that's, you know, I I, I I dialed back on what my expectations were. I dialed back on what I thought I needed versus to what I absolutely needed. Absolutely needed, and I started my company for less than twenty grand. Wow! Wait, wait, wait! You said single dad at twenty six, though? No, I was actually technically I was a single dad at the age of twenty four. Well, okay, so I'm going to pause there. I just want to talk about that because first of all, that's relatively a young age to to already be married and divorced. So, how did you? How did that play a role into what you're doing today? Because that's a big responsibility, being a, a, a parent and all that. Yeah. You know, I, absolutely, being being a, a father, I think, is one of life's hardest. For me, it was at least one of life's most most difficult jobs, especially doing it by myself. But also, it's been one of my ro- most rewarding jobs. My son now is uh, 27 years old. He's an accountant, and he lives out in Orange County, California. And he's become his his own success story. But not without all, all the challenges that go with that. And it really goes down to, you know, how, how do we as parents help our children grow up? How do, you know, I, he was, I got custody when he was two and I was 24. So essentially, if you think about it from the, a real global perspective, it's, it's two children, two boys raising each other. And it, it really helped shape a lot of the decisions that I made. It was one of the reasons why I wanted to be an entrepreneur because I felt that I could control my schedule a little bit more working for myself versus working for someone else. Um, and it then propelled me decided, deciding to not just want to build a job for myself but also to build a company and scale it up, which would allow me to provide hopefully a, a better life for him because I was I was the only parent he had. Wow. Um, first of all, thank you for that. Uh, and that's, that's a very admirable thing I think you know, parenting is – 
I mean, it's such a it's such an undervalued uh, uh, thing. People always say it's a thankless job with things like that, but it is such a fundamental and foundational uh, skill set in building leaders. Just because you have an active role in molding and developing uh, someone to to eventually be a leader, and and that that is something I feel should never be overlooked. So, really, really, really appreciate you taking the time to do that, and I can see how that ultimately laid, laid the foundation for what you do today. And so. Well- for me, it was really important to, to be a parent because I think as, as men, society will often show us the opportunity to not be a parent and mm. the statistics point to that. And I remember my, my father passed away when I was five years old. So I was raised by my mom, a single parent, and I appreciated everything she did. She really in my household was both mom and dad. She encouraged me academically. She nurtured me emotionally. She encouraged me athletically in all those different areas, and I recognized how how important her role was in my life. But I also, and she and I would talk about it, you know, talk about how I missed having a dad. And when I, so when I, when I was able to, to successfully gain custody of my son, my, my primary commitment to not only to, to myself, but foremost to him and to the world was to be a dad first and an entrepreneur second. And that was always a, a struggle and a push pull. And it wasn't always an easy way to go, but I, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. Yeah, and you also did something that's rare. I mean, in custody battles, it, it's not off, often that the man wins, right? That's that's the stat that shows that. There's a stat that shows that. that um, well, especially uh, – now, I got custody in 1993. Oh, wow. And, and I got custody in Detroit, Michigan, in Wayne County. And at the time, the, the data point showed less than 1% of fathers who fought for custody actually gained it. Yeah. So th- thankfully, the tide has turned a little bit. So now that hopefully – the court systems view view parenting not as a gender issue, but as a fit for the child issue. So I think that's shifted a little bit. But yeah, back in those days, it was you were one percent if you if you were that lucky. Yeah, well, as a one percenter and someone who's raised a twenty seven year old kid who's doing successful right now, I'm twenty eight, so and I'm turning twenty nine this year. So I definitely um, I'm within the, your son's generation. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing that I see and within my generation is. Um, I'm one that I, I, I do this thing where I say I want to help redefine masculinity in the 21st century because I feel like um, there's a different version of masculinity that doesn't necessarily in, in compa- uh, encapsulate the whole experience of what it is to be a man today, right? I feel like it's more multi-layered than uh, uh, binary stories that we've been told. And, you know, I come at it from a very international <laughs> background because I am an international and I grew up in different parts of the world. But just seeing how masculinity has been... Uh, portrayed recently, whether it's with several scandals recently or just you as a father, what do you see is the uh, is the actual need for for um, you know evolving masculine not evolving masculine for telling masculinity stories the way they should be? Well, I think that's a, one. It's a fabulous question. I give you credit for asking it. I've done several interviews in my twenty five years in business, and, and really, no one's asked me that question. Woo! So. I give you credit for having the insight. And I, and I think as a society, first of all, we have to remember, like you're articulating, we're in a global community. Whether, you, again, you're a parent, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're in business, or whether you're just concerned about an, our overall society, we are in a global community. And I think it, it, it would behoove all of us to take a global approach in how we raise our children. Just as importantly, I think it's important that we take a look at what masculinity means around the globe. There are so many outdated thought processes around masculinity and the suffering that men have and the suffering we go through and the pain we we experience because we're not encouraged to share our feelings, to share our emotions, 
to to be the the human being first and foremost we need to be for ourselves but secondly the the parent we need to be to our children the partner we need to be to our significant other those all require i think three things authenticity transparency and vulnerability and not many societies encourage that within men back in back in the day and i think we're hopefully seeing a shift in that but i think you know children are going to gravitate you know our partners are going to gravitate gravitate towards that authenticity that transparency and that vulnerability because we don't always have to be the big bad sufferer for the greater good of our families people yeah. are people we 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 fail forward together we suffer together we succeed together we fail together it, it we have a global community and that requires the men to be able to to be encouraged again by society to say you know what i suffer if you look at the the, the um, suicide rate rate amongst male entrepreneurs, it's higher than the national average because we suffer in silence. We suffer with imposter syndrome. We suffer thinking we need to be the oracle and have all the answers, and frankly, we don't. So anything we can do, and I appreciate again the, the question on the podcast today to put out there that you know an entrepreneur alone is an entrepreneur at risk. A man alone is a man at risk. It takes a global community to, to encourage that masculinity. And there's nothing wrong with being sensitive and caring towards ourselves first and foremost, but also to our children, to our significant others, and to our, our community in, at large. Yeah. No, no. well said. Well said. I think that authenticity, vulnerability, and transparency are, are so key. And you know, the interesting thing with that is that parallels with you being a leader with your company. I think and a good CEO is authentic, is transparent, and um, at, you know, vulnerable at times even. Um, and I, I think... Uh, with your background, as we transition into the um, uh, later stages of your life, you ended up running this six-time uh, is, is, is uh, you know Inc. Five, it's five thousand Inc. company, right? Uh, basically, Correct, a, com yes. a company that's you know listed uh, an Inc. is one of the, the top five thousand companies. Um, and then you fired most of them. So talk <laughs> most of your employees. Are, talk to me about what that felt like to be recognized one for six times. And then why you felt like you needed to fire almost everyone there? Well, let, let me back up a little bit. Um, in 2006 is when I, when I let everybody go. The company was $600,000 in debt, 60 days away from running out of cash. Mm. A, as the leader, I was definitely suffering from imposter syndrome and, and borderline depression. I wasn't doing the things that I needed to do, which allowed the employees, which encouraged you know, a, a dysfunctional toxic culture. We didn't make our first Inc. 5000 until 2007, so we really became successful once I leaned into the uncomfortable and I made those changes on the staff. So we changed the staff first, and then we had the, the ride of success. Um, and that really required us to, to shift how we looked at the world, how I looked at the company. And it did require a lot of authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability with the new people. For example, I stopped hiring people with a recruiting background and started hiring people I wanted to work with, people that I connected with. I thought if they're good people, I, I can take a good person and make them into a good recruiter. I can't take a, a decent recruiter and make them into a good person if they're a complete pain in the ass to deal with. So really, that's kind of where we came up with the concept of, of hire for DNA, not for resume. And once we pivoted that way, that was one of the big, big stepping stones in helping us make the Inc. 5000 a Michigan record six times. Wow. Hiring for DNA and not for resume. <laughs> You're full. I can tell that. I mean, you're like a, a quote machine. This is this is this is amazing. So when you hire for DNA and not for resume, how do you pinpoint what that DNA is like? 
Well, you know, like the work I do now with my, my consulting practice to extraordinary advisors is I help companies figure out what their DNA is. I figure out, and really I do a lot of, you know, I give credit where credit is due. Simon Sinek in his book helped me figure out a lot of that stuff. I, I was fortunate to meet Simon even before he published his first book, and he helped me figure out what my personal why, W-H-Y, is, which we then figured out what the company's why will be. And for me, it comes down to two words. Uh, we do we improve lives, and everything I do as an individual, I want to improve lives. Being on your podcast today, if I improve one person's life or they hear one idea that, that they hadn't come across before, or they, they, they feel a sense of community with me, and they, wow, this guy really, I, I feel his pain. I've been down that path. I'm a single parent. I'm a struggling entrepreneur. I may have to you know, let some people go on my team. Those are all about, Those are all ways we can improve lives. And what we do, what I do with the employees is once I was able to articulate how we improve lives, once we were able to fit, articulate what our core values were, not our mission statement, but our core values as an organization, that's really where we were able to see that shift. And those core values are different for every company. But you can't sit there as a, as a CEO and say, one of my core values is honesty if you're being dishonest. And I, and I, I see this a lot with, with CEOs. You know, they're, they're, they're honest to, to, a, to a point. They're honest to a certain level, but they won't be really honest with employees. And going back to some of the decisions and conversations I've had to have with my teams, like, hey, we're, we're in a tough spot. Here's where we are. It's not fun to do that. But, you know, sometimes the best ideas come from the people that you include in your, your, your difficult conversations versus thinking you have to have all the answers. Yeah, no, that's well said. Uh, that's good. So then obviously you alluded to it there that now you run this consultant practices uh, where you, you help people determine that. There are people in today's world um, who have they, – they want to be thought leaders essentially, like you're a thought leader. And they want to know how they can develop that expertise and then build an audience based on that. What would you say are the, the steps that one can do towards building um, expertise and then being known for that expertise? Well, I think you have to figure out, first of all, going back to what I said earlier, know yourself. Play to your strengths. Know who you are. Versus trying to be some, you know, all things to all people. I think one of the biggest challenges a lot of entrepreneurs run into early when they're trying to figure out who they are is they try to please everyone, and you really can't. You know, we hire employees thinking they should they should fill all facets of the job, all facets of what our business needs, and they really can't. It's just not very. There are very few people who are good at everything. So going back to your question, figure out who you are. Figure out what. If, you're, if you want to be a thought leader, where do you want to be a thought leader? Do you want to be a thought leader in a certain segment of business, not just in business? If you want to be, you want to be, you know, for, for our business a lot, we get we get called in to do a lot of thought leadership on either how to grow and scale a company because we were able to do that and the Inc. 5000 proves that. Or we get called in to talk companies about how to do hiring. So we're a thought leader in hiring. So we're going to be a thought leader in hiring. How, how, do I, how do I teach how to hire for DNA, not just for resume? How do we show people how to do an interview process? How do we show people how to do onboarding? And then how do we show them how to keep keep an employee engaged and satisfied? Those are all different things. I don't come in and profess to be a thought leader in, in the areas of cash management. I know how to do that, and I, I can show companies how to make more money and improve their margins. But there there are people who also just specialize only in that sector. There, there are a lot of different niches within this world. Focus on something that you can be the best at. You know, go to, go to the hedgehog concept from Jim Collins. Where can you be the best at? Where will people pay you money? 
where can you where where and where is no one else looking where you can exploit that weakness within the uh, within the sector? Yeah. Wow. No. Yeah. And and I I couldn't agree with you more on the self awareness part. And I think the interesting thing about self awareness, I don't know if you agree with me on this, Todd, is that you know, like you, I do a lot of organizational consulting. I run a diversity inclusion firm, and I also work with thought leaders um, because that's essentially how I launched my career. This podcast, which started in August two thousand fourteen is essentially what propelled me to be a speaker and a consultant in the space because I became known as someone who helps people connect effectively across cultures. And now creating that platform, um, I recognize that if I didn't start off with the self-awareness piece and knowing who I was and what, where, where my skill set uh, lay, I wouldn't have been able to have a foundation. And I always tell that to people whenever I'm consulting is that know who, what your organization is, what it stands for, and know what you are. Because sometimes... If you're a leader of an organization, there's a disconnect with who you are and what your, the culture your organization takes, takes on. And that sometimes can be a problem where you might profess to be one thing, but your organization is taking on a, a certain negative aspect of your personality. And so how do you correct that, that thing? And then if you're running a, you know, a solopreneur business, is you can end up falling into the trap of maybe comparing yourself to other people. And then at that moment, you're risking the uh, the authenticity uh, authentic version of yourself because then no one knows how to differentiate you from the person that you're comparing yourself to. Well, I think also when you take into, into account all everything you just described, people are going to pick up uh, on your either your authenticity or your inauthenticity mm-hmm. at a cellular level. People make decisions based upon emotion and justify it with logic down the line. They do it with hiring. They even do it with things like dating. I mean, we all. Watch all those different things. If you know who you are, you can profess that. And you're able to say to somebody, you know, I can help you in these areas. Those other areas, those are not my areas of expertise. We should let someone else handle that. You'd be surprised how often the person who's going to be buying your, or engaging your services will appreciate that level of just pure candor because every, a lot of people want to be all things to all people. And that just – anybody who's been a seasoned buyer is going to basically see right through that. And they're not going to. You're not going to. They're not going to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. No, this this is so good. I, I love. I love uh, you. Just your story so far with this. And then, okay. Obviously, the inevitable thing that comes from you creating a company is that there is failure. You know, failure is a part of life. And you know, the, the, for me, there's a great saying. I think it's by the late legendary Nelson Mandela, who's my favorite leader of all time. Um, says I, you know, and you know, I never lose or fail i you know i either win or learn and essentially it goes into your concept of failing forward how can we learn how to turn failures into learning opportunities oh i i couldn't agree with you more that's one of my favorite quotes as well i i worked with a, a gentleman on the west coast dr danny freeman and that's one of his favorite quotes and we actually incorporated that quote into the work i'm now doing and, and really, in order for us to understand how failure, failing forward works, is first of all, we have to accept and understand that just because a failure occurs doesn't mean we are a failure. And that's something I suffered from when I had my, my big bout of imposter syndrome. I thought that if the company failed, I was a failure. If the company was successful, I was successful. And that's really not the case. The only place where learning occurs is when we fail, when, we, when something doesn't work. And I think so many people look at Failure as a, a, a zero-sum game. Either you win or you lose. And really, at the end of the day, the only way to learn is through failure. Yeah. And it's, it's recognizing that, you know, first of all, recognize the failure. 
shift your mindset. Second step is to shift your mindset around it, recognizing that it's part of the process. So it's going to happen. When when you fail, create a new strategy. That's the third step. Fourth step is execute against said strategy. Find out, get feedback. Fifth step, get feedback. Is it working or is it not working? And iterate through that process. This failure is going to continue on. Learning is going to continue on, whether, again, it's a parent, as an entrepreneur, as a solopreneur, and just as a person in everyday life. You're going to have those days. You're going to have those experiences. As you iterate through it, then you can shift your strategy, change your execution. You can get different feedback, and that's really, that's life. That's how the process goes. And it's, it's frustrating. I just did a speech in Toronto where I laid that whole concept out. I had a nine-year-old boy come up to me afterwards, and he thanked me for teaching him something he had never heard before, something he had never learned before. And he actually drew a diagram with 20 blocks that he wrote on a piece of paper with the word, the letter F in it for failure. Then he had the equal sign, then he had a big block that had the word success. He goes, now I know that I don't quit It's at, at failure number 10 or failure number 11, failure number 19, that I have to continually fail forward in order to be successful. A nine-year-old got this. So it's, it can be universally applied, again, not only to the entrepreneurs listening, but also to the parents and the other adults who are participating today. Okay, no, no. So first of all, congrats on being able to impact a, a nine-year-old. I work with a lot of youth, and, and I definitely understand uh, sometimes how, it, it, you know, it's an interesting um, challenging opportunity, and I love that. I love those challenges. Um, I meant, One of the kids I mentor is, is 11, and I've been with him since he was 10, and sometimes explaining um, things to them, it actually reminds me of how we've normalized um, uh, lack of universal principles for leadership. Because I find myself sometimes talking to 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 you know youth as as if you know they don't understand some things that they already do, and I forget that we live in this digital world where they have access to more things than even I did when I was younger, uh, and so um, th- th- that speaks to the level of universality uh, with what you're saying there. Um, interesting thing with with what you're saying though with the, with the failure thing is another thing that I I, I know I brought up earlier. Um, but I want to probe more is this idea of uh, comparisitis. I just came up with that term. You're comparing yourself. Now, this has gone on. I know a lot of people like to act like it's just this generational thing, and that's a rant. But <laughs> but uh, this is back in the day. I, I believe like Michelangelo, Michelangelo, Michelangelo rather, Michelangelo, Picasso, all of them, Leonardo da Vinci, even them, I believe that they had some level of of comparing something to each other because everybody's always saying, you're not this person, you're not that person. Why should we do this? Why should we do that? That particular thing, even though fundamentally we know it's not um, a good. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, a healthy habit to have. It is something that does happen, just like failure does happen. Now, when you find yourself doing that, I, I wonder if you have some actionable steps to remind yourself about the importance of, of recognizing individuality, because it, it, is, it is a very important skill to be able to, to separate yourself from another person, but also you know, just develop yourself. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it, it is definitely a challenge. Um, I, I, I still play baseball at my at my old age, and I try to play competitive baseball around the country. And sports is one of the greatest microcosms to compare yourself to others, as well as to compare yourself to yourself. And I'm, you know, I've got a chance to spend time with professional athletes, and I talk about how, how talk with them how they handle comparing themselves to to other successful people. How does Miguel Cabrera compare himself to Mike Trout? People like that. Right, right. It's really interesting for me to hear that they, you know, they re they recognize and realize that we don't the real real world doesn't lend itself to everybody gets a trophy thought processes. Yeah. Every because everybody they recognize, especially in the athletic world, that everyone's not created equal, and that's okay. There are guys who can hit the ball. You know, 450 feet, and there are guys who can throw the ball with pinpoint precision. Some of them pitch, some of them hit. There are very few people who can do all things at all times. Even the best players have slumps. Even the best players have weaknesses in their games. And what they they really taught me is going back to some of the very basic principles is know what you're good at. Play to your strengths. Uh, for your listeners, check out the work from Mar Marcus Buckingham and how he talks about how you play, play to your strengths. We all have unique abilities in our society. Unfortunately, this happens a lot with parents. We'll, we'll try to get kids and young people to, to focus on their weaknesses, improve your weaknesses, improve your weaknesses, improve your weaknesses. Well, what if we improve their strengths? One of my, my favorite speakers who's become a friend is a guy named Dr. David Rendell. And he has a book out there called The Freak Factor. And the whole book talks about how not only as entrepreneurs, but as parents of children, we can work with kids and entrepreneurs to get them to play to their strengths. The last thing you, you want someone to try to do is to improve their weaknesses as, and ignore their strengths. Not everybody's going to be the, the world's greatest whatever, but they can be the very best version of themselves. So going back to your question, the actionable items, it's to recognize that you're not going to be great at everything, and that's okay. It's that, and it's that part in that, in that ability within your mindset to say, I, I really did the very best that I could. I learned this, this, and this from this thing that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, and here's how I'm going to fail forward. And if I continue to do that, and I recognize this is part of the process, do I ever really truly fail? Because if I never fail, then everything I do is is a success. Now it takes a lot of mental discipline to do that. But that ability to do that, that ability to, to demonstrate self compassion and self care for one's mind will get you through just about any difficult situation you're going to go through, especially as an entrepreneur where we make you know, important decisions with 30% of the information, 40% of the information. You're never, ever going to have 100% of the information. It just doesn't exist because there are market conditions. There are competitors that you may not even be aware of 
who are maybe ahead of you, that you're just never going to get 100% of the information. So you can't have paralysis by an over-analysis. You have to be okay with leaning into the uncomfortable and pushing forward and iterating through the failure process. If you allow yourself the freedom to do that, you'll save yourself a lot of grief. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No. The, yeah. No. And, and that's that's the important thing. I, I think re- being kind to ourselves is something we we, um, we all need to learn. Um, soliciting feedback is something that we all need to get used to. I think a lot of times uh, feedback gets a bad rep, um, and it, it's really an opportunity for growth. But just just understanding that sports sports um, analogy is is so key. Sports is for me a very important part of my life. Uh, you know, for me, I've played at since I was a kid, and you know, basketball, soccer, tennis. Um, uh, and, um, you know, and I definitely understand and appreciate a lot of American sports as well as American football and, and um, and baseball. And I see the same thing you're saying, whether it's Cabrera versus Trout. Um, I live in New York, so we hear a lot about, uh, the judge delivering some sentences and, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and <laughs> yeah, and, and what's going on, you know, with, with, uh, with, with that, but, Basketball, my sport of choice, for example, you hear a lot about LeBron James versus Michael Jordan, right? You hear a lot about, the, you know, all the Kobe and, and all the, you know, the greats before. There's always this comparison thing where a lot of athletes sometimes use it as a chip on their shoulder and sometimes they crumble under the pressure because they feel like uh, they didn't live up to that. And in that process, they don't develop themselves. And it's an interesting way um, I think it's an interesting microcosm of life where if you're able to t- learn how to start to take positive things out of certain perceived negativity, you will ultimately grow uh, and you wouldn't give as much power to, you know, other people's negative opinions of you. And and that really requires a lot of nourishment of self. And, and that's just a lifelong thing. So since you're a basketball guy, I'd like, I'd like to give you this gift. I have a, <laughs> a, a photo hanging in my office. I'm actually going to read it to you verbatim. And it's a photo of Michael Jordan. And it quote-unquote says this, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. Bam. No, I love that quote. And, and I've seen that so many times, but that, that is just what life is, right, Todd? That's exactly what it is. And you, you're, you have essentially six jobs where you essentially work with people in different parts of the world. You did the most important job as a father. You saw it w- w- with your son. You've seen it with your companies. You see it with the, the people you consult with. We live in a world where, you know, internet is becoming a, a fast way to create platforms. But I love how you are reminding people that the fundamentals are still the same, which is that radical self-awareness and, and, and developing such a growth mindset where you're able to be in a state of continuously learning, no matter how dire the situations may be. And one of the, you know, one of the reasons I love Nelson Mandela and everybody, I know the podcast people are always probably tired of me talking about Mandela and Oprah. They're my two biggest influences, but he spent 27 years in jail. I'm 28. And if he can come, out of 27 years in jail and in this latter part of his life be considered one of the most fundamental influences in the 20th century uh, and part of the 21st century in the latter phases of his life after being in jail for that long and, you know, developing himself there. Who, 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 what's to say what we can do? 
no matter what life throws at us, right? That's just an example yeah, of that. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. he, he was what? He was in a 10 by 10 cell, yeah. and the only control was his mind. Yeah, yeah. And you, yeah, you could control, you could lose your mind, or you could do what he did where he, you know, he, he continued schooling, he developed himself, he changed his approach where, you know, initially uh, what led him to jail was some of, you know, they said it was a little, they were saying it was a little radical, uh, but he was just standing up for his, for his beliefs. But still, he then started to educate himself and other people. And then um, his approach to come out of jail and not necessarily put the people to put him in jail and just go back. I'm going to send all of you back and just say, hey, why don't we work on reconciliation and forgiveness and stuff like that? That's such a uh, <laughs> a radical approach to to uh, what the world would have expected him to do. And that takes a lot of you know growth. And that well, comes from developing yourself on purpose. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I could go on and on about him. But um, <laughs> But, you know, so I love that you do that as well with your company. Well, I think, I think Mandela is an inspiration for all of us. And I think this is a quote that I saw attributed to him. And it ties into the, your point of resentment, you know, to get revenge upon others. And resentment to him, I, I think the quote was something like this. That being resentful towards others is like taking, taking an arsenic pill, hoping the other party dies. You're the only person who suffers when you feel that way towards somebody. Yeah. One of my... One of the, the people I recently read about that really has inspired me, and he's no longer with us either, is a guy who at the age of 65 reinvented his life, drove around the United States in, living in his car for a year, going out and doing 1,009 sales presentations, being told no 1,009 times before he made his first sale. And that's Colonel Sanders of Kentucky Fried Chicken Fan. I mean, to, I can't imagine going out, living in your car, driving around the country at the age of 65 after your, your restaurant closed, selling your chicken recipe, being told 1,009 times no before you get your first sale. And boom, within 10 years, he has 600 locations. And then he's the first franchise to go overseas. Imagine if he quit a time. What if he said, I'm only going to try this 100 times and quit. Right, right. That is so true. No, and, and you're right. And, and there are even other I think it was Thomas Edison who filled almost 10,000 times before the light bulb. You know, all these... Um, all these examples of people who had this pers- perseverance and persistence, um, it, it's, it's a great reminder. Uh, and I think your point about the, you know, developing that mindset is what will help you be able to push through those moments. Because, I mean, you've, you've said you failed multiple times, but even when you, you were unable to make payroll, but your mindset, I, I would argue, is probably what kept you going for you to be able to see a long-term vision uh, and long-term solution to a short-term problem. And the ability to separate long-term versus short-term um, is a rare thing that we teach in today's schools. It's like, okay, this is, a, this is happening now, but in the long-term, me doing this, uh, it will ultimately uh, improve my life. Yeah. It's, well, it's one of the situations, too, goes back to core values. When I was struggling with my business back in 2006, it was recommended to me by several successful um, advisors that I should file for bankruptcy. I should discharge $600,000 in debt from people who, who vendors who trusted me, bank who had trusted me, others who had trusted me, and I should just discharge that and start over clean. Mm. And I, I thought to myself at the time, could I walk into my son's bedroom, explain to him that I'm filing bankruptcy and starting over to discharge $600,000 in debt when I keep telling him he has to be a, a young man of integrity, he has to be a young man who keeps his word. He has to be a young man who, who honors his debts to others. 
yet I didn't live that way. That that just I could not do that. And you know, thankfully, the company was that we were able to turn the business around, have all of our vendors and bank in full, and, and you know, go on to have a nice run of success. But for me, the core the core value, the core driver was I couldn't look my son in the face and tell him that I behaved in a disingenuous way and I went against what I told him he should be and how he should behave. Yeah. No, that's well said. That's well said. So, I mean, we're, we're getting ready to wrap up here, but I want to um, obviously talk more about uh, something that we both do, which is working in, in, in a corporate workspace. Do you believe that is an employment problem? I, I think on one of your podcasts I was listening to, you were talking about, um, I think you said there was something that's actually causing the unemployment problem. Um, uh, it might have been on the, the Less Doing More podcast. I was doing research on you. Um, but can you talk more about that? Yeah, well, there is a, there is definitely a battle for talent, and the battle for talent ties into several data points, and they're really simple. First of all, we have a country that's running at full employment. We're at four percent or less. So that's the first part. Second part is you've got your baby boomers that are leaving the workforce, and they're the, they're our largest population piece, regardless of employment or not employment. So you got a bunch of people leaving the party. You got your millennials who are supposed to be coming into the party to replace the boomers in the employment sector. Interesting subcategory to that unemployment number is millennials have the highest per capita unemployment sector at nearly 13%. So the country's at full employment, but our next generation is the highest unemployed group. Factor in, so you get the, you know, the opposite ends of the spectrum. You get the boomers leaving the party, the millennials not entering into the party, so you've got the, group, the room where the party's being held. And that's your area of what we call labor participation. And that labor participation number is at a 45-year low. So at the end of the day, people are leaving, people are not coming in, and the people in the room are the lowest number in 45 years in your lifetime are not even choosing to work. So yes, we've got a battle for talent problem, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. So then what, what do you think it's causing it? Oh, gosh. It's... it's um, We've got, you know, it's, it's interesting, regardless of whether you're, you know, whatever side of the aisle you sit on politically, both sides saying we want to bring in more jobs. We've got plenty of jobs. We don't have plenty of people. We don't have plenty of trained people. You know, I, I argue one of America's largest exports is our education. People send their kids here to be educated. Kids want to stay in and they want to work at, in the sectors they've been trained in, whether it's accounting, whether it's nursing, whether it's skilled trades. It doesn't really matter. And we don't provide them an opportunity to stay and do the work. That's a real challenge. And if we don't, as a country, if we don't produce a GDP, we're going to be in pretty bad shape. Right. So first right. of all, we, we've got some challenges within the system. Secondarily, if you look at the millennials, if they're if they're in a, what I would argue, going back to the comment about everybody gets a ribbon, everybody gets a trophy for just participating, if that's the mindset they have, that they just should have a job, they should be able to do whatever they you know want, that's going to be a challenge because a lot of the employers aren't going to be able to, to sustain that. Yeah. The flip side of it is the employers need to shift their mindset. They have to recognize and realize that the world has changed, that millennials want to be part of teams. They don't want to necessarily always work individually. They aren't going to just do what they're told and be thankful to have a job in an area where they can go out and get a new job tomorrow. They have to be included in the, in the conversation. They have to be part of the dialogue to grow the company. And the last thing that, that employers need to recognize when it comes to the millennial sector, by and large, is they will, make, they will choose to make less money for more flexibility and freedom. So if you're an employer, you can provide those things to them, a, workspace, a work environment where people will collaborate, a work environment where things are explained and why they do what they do, and you're going to allow for employee participation. And you're going to have a flexible mindset around the work that needs to be done. You're going to be very attractive for the next generation of employee. 
Oh, well, well said. I mean, I mean, I mean, couldn't have said it better myself. And and um, you know, as someone who exists in 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 one of the uh, generations you talked about, it is you know that interesting disconnect with the idea of the availability of the jobs and then the um, lack of employability for some people is uh, I, I I have noticed that myself. And um, and sometimes I, that's why I focus on education being a core principle because I, I do. I've, I got my MBA, so I'm not bashing education system. I just want us to rethink a little bit, you know, <laughs> how we educate people and, and translate it to the real world in terms of the way the trends are moving. Because when I remember when I was getting my MBA and I, you know, I was the only one that was entrepreneurial in my entire class. Everybody was finance. And, and, and I remember just dreading to myself, I was like, oh my gosh, if I go and get this job that, Everyone expects me to get. I would not like myself because <laughs> I, no, <laughs> no. It wasn't. It wasn't because of what I was like. They seem so suited there, but I was. You know, I I launched this podcast while I was getting my MBA. It was in my um uh, at the end of my first year, and I, and I was getting way more excitement from this, and I was starting to to really learn how to grow there, and I was, and I had that crossroads: go to get the job at, at Deloitte or you know Accenture, or figure out how to do something with this podcast. And I, I made the difficult choice that baffled my parents and, and people around me not to go on, on any of the recruiting trips, even though I was going to school. So I didn't go on all the, all the recruiting trips to, 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 to go on to, to get these jobs. And I focused on this. And for the first few years, it did look like they were right. Like, this is a crazy individual who has this opportunity. But ultimately, it, it was able to help me develop, you know, skill sets to, to be able to communicate, to be able to speak, to be able to grow an audience which are skill sets that a media professional needs in today's world? How do you tell stories in the digital landscape as well as on the stage? Um, and I hearken back to those moments where I know there are other people in that dilemma, but they might not be as risky as I was. And I just want schools to be able to open <laughs> platforms for them as well, because there's that way and then there's another way. And so that's just my own one gripe uh, with uh, current education systems. I think you could expand on that. So I, I, I share your gripe, but I think it can even be expanded. What, what if we as a society didn't just focus kids on going into university settings? Mm-hmm. Because I think there's, you know, think about it like this. You know, when, you're, when your air conditioning goes out or you, 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 so you have a problem with electrical, the, the person who shows up to fix your, your, air con- your AC or your electrical situation is probably going to be over 55 years old, by and large. Right. That's just what the demographics say. Yet, if you, you know, I, I know a young guy, he's under 35, he's making six figures as an electrician. He sets his own hours, he works when he wants to work, he makes great money for him and his family, and he doesn't have the hassles, headaches, and problems that someone who works for Deloitte might have, the stresses, the, the, the 24-7, 365 mentality, which I know people are great at that, and there's a need for that. There's also a need for somebody to come in and take care of your electrical, to fix your AC, to weld, to machine, to do construction, to make something, there's still a huge need and a huge value for the undervalued center of making something. And if we can take kids, figure out, going back to what are your unique abilities as a human being, not everybody's going to be as articulate as you are. They, they might be more introverted, and that introverted person may just want that ability to sit and, and work on a project. You know, I, I have a friend of mine. They're in the home cleaning space of all things, entrepreneurial. And talking with them, they talk about how much just 
joy they get out of walking into a dirty environment and making it clean. And they love the accolades and the attaboys they get from the person who did that. Now, I don't want to go clean my house. I, I, I give them credit for it. So I recognize that they have a very unique reward from the work that they do. They see the world differently than I do. And you know what? That's okay. There's a need for all of our skill sets. Not everybody needs to to necessarily go to a university. There's a lot of opportunities for people that they can just learn a trade or find a way to take what they do best, things that they enjoy the most, like you did, and make a living at it. Yeah. 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 First of all, thanks for adding that because that, that is the key thing there. It's um, There are certain narratives that we've been told that are the only ways to, to grow. And you know you can't apply industrial revolution standards to digital age standards. You, 21st, even a tw- there's a big gap between the 20th century and the 21st century. And you have to open the room for more narratives and, and have more than binary conversation about what, what is considered success. Because even with, with people like the, 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 uh, the individuals you mentioned, the only stories we hear about those people in the big trades are when they make it big. And the other ones that are still successful, but maybe not millionaires, you don't hear their stories. And so it looks like, oh, it's this anomaly. And there's no one else in the middle. And so everyone else there thinks like, well, that's the 1% and I'm not going to be able to find anyone to relate to. And I think it's such a dangerous problem with not telling those type of stories because every single individual can have a marketable skill today, whether it's writing, people make money gaming. You know, you, if you had said that in 1989, Someone would have looked at you crazy with the year I was born that you could make a uh, money gaming or YouTubing. There's about to be a big boxing match with the two two of the most popular YouTubers, and they have marketed it the way normal boxers would have done it, and they're able to make money the same way. And it's just about understanding yourself, understanding what the appetite for the the world is uh, in your niche, and then giving them that value. And we have to do a better job of saying if that's what you want to do. These are the skill sets you need to have, and these are the platforms that exist for you to do that. Absolutely. So it's so funny. When I started my company, I started my company in 1997. The internet had basically just been invented. Mm-hmm. Now, you couldn't start a recruiting business without using the internet. When I started the recruiting business, we didn't even have it as a tool. And that's you know less than 30 years ago. It's amazing how much the life is changing. And if you, if you listen to, to thought leaders like a Peter Diamandis and, and other folks like that, the way we learn and how many data points we receive and how quickly that our society is going to have to iterate, it, it just it, it could be a little overwhelming but incredibly exciting at the same time. Yeah. Uh, well, I could, I could talk all day, but Todd, we do have to close soon. So please tell us where we can find out more about your work because obviously I'm sure anyone listening is thinking they can learn a lot from you um, and even more about you. And so how can people work with you and where can people reach out to you? Oh, well, thank you so much for the opportunity. You know, I, I had a great time talking with you today. I think we've had a lot, lot of great conversations. Hopefully people found value in it. And what I'd like to do to your audience is I'd like to offer them the opportunity. If they heard something they like today, they want to have a one-hour free consultation with me, they simply have to go to my website, extraordinaryadvisors.com, fill out the information page. My, my person, Kelly, will contact you, get you on my calendar, and we can have a conversation about business, about mindset, about hiring, whatever is important to you as a listener of the podcast today. I'd be happy to give you an hour of my time for free because it ties into me and my values of improving lives. And I think of all the people through the course of my time in business and in life who've helped me grow as a human being, grow as a father, grow as a man. This is my chance to thank them for helping them, me, helping me pay it forward. So, yeah, go to ExtraordinaryAdvisors.com. I'm happy to get you on my calendar to have a conversation. Love that. Thank you. 
Thank you. That's very generous of you. So no, okay, no, I'll put that in the show notes, extraordinaryadvisors.com. And um, uh, uh, Todd, I mean Todd, I can't thank you once again. I mean this has just been great. Just um, it's always amazing to hear from people like yourself who have been successful in various aspects of the world uh, of of the world one, but also in um, several industries. And to hear you break down some of these uh, essential um, foundational skill sets, it's uh, it's always. Um, Affirming, reaffirming, but also um, inspirational. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me on the show. I had a great time chatting with you, and I wish you nothing but continued success. You seem like you've really got some big visions and some great ideas of what you want to accomplish. Thank you. Oh, one last question before we go. My mission statement <laughs> is this. Use your difference to make a difference. That's the foundation of everything I personally do and why I do all this. So before you go, how do you use your difference to make a difference? Great question. Um, for me, it ties back into the core value. I want to improve lives. I think if I want other people to to have success, I want other people to be successful. The first thing I have to do is I have to listen to listen, not listen to respond. Secondarily, if I want others to be authentic, transparent, and vulnerable, I have to embody those things. And, and lastly, and it's always a, a, a work in progress for me specifically is to accept that failing forward is part of the learning process. And learning is, while it can be uncomfortable, while it can be a challenge, learning is where we grow as people. And if the people can learn, people can grow. You know, for me, those, those are the key things in life for me, whether it's in business or in personal. So I, I think that that's really how I'm able to figure out. And really, so my uniqueness is I have no problem talking about the dumb things I did, all the failures I've had bad decisions I made because we've all had them. And going back to your original statement about how do we as men make a difference in the world, I think that's how we do it. We, we lead heart first. We lead authentic, authentically first. And I think the world will follow. Wow. Well, well, thank you so much, Todd. This has been great. And uh, I just want to thank you once again. So thank you for that. Thank you. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.